Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for moving that. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. And if you're visiting with us, we have ushers that will be happy to give you a Bible. I didn't grow up, I often say this, I didn't grow up in a church where they read the Bible, so it was new to me to come to church and everyone had their Bible. So you're welcome to keep this Bible if you don't have one, but part of what we do here is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible so we can learn God's Word and see what the Lord has to say to us. So... We began a study of Romans last week, but before we do that, I'd like us to take a moment to pray in light of what happened out in Oregon. I think it would be important for us to to remember these type of things. I know many of you have been praying. It's a sobering reminder. Jesus said, do not fear them who kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body and put the soul in hell. Whoever wants to save his life in this world will lose it. And so there's this calling upon Christians to be willing, if asked, to confess Christ even at the expense of losing our lives. And as I've thought about that, we obviously need to pray for the families of the victims, for a lot of things, but it also made me wonder, what if there was somebody in that group who was a believer, who didn't stand up, didn't confess Christ? And it also causes us to ask, what would I have done in a situation like this? And I really want to encourage you, this is a wonderful discussion point whereby you could bridge the gospel and talk to people. Hey, what do you think about what happened there? What do you think you would have done if you were asked if you're Christian, stand up? And, and why would you have done that or not done that? So, but let's take a moment to pray because it's just such a sad tragedy. But remember, all over the world, there's lots more people being martyred for their Christian faith. This is not an isolated uh, situation. In fact, it's kind of weird to think that we're sort of inoculated from that. But most of the world, people are being killed all the time for Christ. Father, we come now and our hearts grieve for these people who lost their lives for Christ, but in many ways, they gained something that um, is such an awesome thing. They gained this great reward to live as Christ, to die as gain, and you said, blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake. So we celebrate that these martyrs are with Christ, that as the book of Revelation says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives even unto death. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength and prayerful preparation. If you ever called us, that we would be willing to die gladly because we know that we'll go right to be with Jesus. We pray for the families of the victims, Lord, that they will not grow bitter at God, but that they would grow better. We pray that many people, because of this, will become Christians, that the gospel will spread. We pray that you will comfort the the families of those who are injured and those who have been traumatized, who lived but were shot or saw what happened, Lord. It's so painful, so sad. But you have a way of bringing good out of evil. And so, Lord, we know that everything happens ultimately for the purpose of bringing glory to God through Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that many in America will get saved as a result of this and that your will will be done and your gospel will spread. And as we study your gospel this morning, may the Holy Spirit help us to grow in grace and open our eyes to grow and learn. And I pray that you'll save those who are lost to the power of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you as we begin this study of the book of Romans, if you're a Christian, it's God's desire for you to mature in your understanding and application of scripture 
not only to live it out, but also to teach it to others. The Bible says in Hebrews 5, by now you ought to be teachers, but now you need to be taught all over again. So every Christian should learn how to walk their way through the book of Romans. And I would encourage you, if for nobody else, as parents, this is something that, that you can rehearse with your children. But I want you, if you're a believer, to read this with a view to saying, you know what, I could share these truths with other people. I don't have to be a pastor. I don't have to have a degree in theology to understand the book of Romans, to read it, to think about its application, and then to share it with others. So this morning, we're going to start in verse 16 and 17, which was part of the introduction to the book. It's really the theme of the book. Some have said these are the two most important verses in the book, and I certainly would encourage you, many of you have already memorized these two verses, but if you haven't, they're two great verses. Paul has told us that he's set apart for the gospel, he serves God in the gospel, and he's eager to preach the gospel. Now he tells us why. What is the theme of this book? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Look with me in verse 16. In other words, I'd be willing to die for it. I'm excited to enter into the Roman arena. I'm willing to talk to everybody about the gospel. Why? Because, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. I'm sorry, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, let me stop right there for, for a couple thoughts. Number one, what Paul's saying here is this message that we call the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on this cross and rose from the dead, is the powerful way that God saves people. It's the only way that God saves people, and it's something that he grants salvation to people by granting them a status of righteousness that they don't deserve. So when you think of this word salvation, it's important that we start there. Okay, the gospel is, is a powerful message of salvation. What is salvation? A lot of times people don't know what that means. Salvation army. And we say to people, are you saved? Well, they don't know what that means. So when you think about salvation in the Bible, it primarily has a future focus of being delivered from God's judgment. In Romans 5 verse 9, it says, because of Jesus' blood we can be saved from the wrath of God through him. But it's not just future. Salvation is a broad thing because God planned our salvation even before he created the world. So it includes our election, the death of Christ. So I often say this, salvation is everything God does. You might want to write this one down. Everything God does to rescue us from hell and bring us to eternal glory. So it's, it's massive. It's everything God does. So he plans it. He elects me. He creates me. He sends Jesus to die on a cross, the innocent sacrifice. He raises him from the dead. Then he sends the Holy Spirit to this earth to convict me and draw me. Then somehow I read the Bible, and he calls me, and I believe. He justifies me, and then he begins to transform me. It's everything that he does until one day... Christ calls me home, and at the resurrection, I'm transformed and glorified. And Paul says, it's this gospel message that's the means by which God powerfully saves people. And think about why, why doesn't he just say the gospel is how God saves people, but it's the power of God, because it takes great power to conquer sin. It takes great power for Jesus to die in our place. It took great power to raise him from the dead. It takes great power to change people's hearts, to deliver them from Satan. It's going to take great power to destroy this earth. And it's all for God's glory. So it's his powerful way that he saves people. 
And he saves people, how? By granting them his righteousness. So, so let's keep reading. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. There we note that it's, that it's, it's broad, right? It's universal. This is a resounding theme in this book, is that Paul's saying it's available to anyone, rich and poor, black and white, doesn't matter. Jew or Gentile, wherever you are, primitive or PhD, the gospel is available to anyone and everyone who believes. You're never beyond the reach of the gospel. But it's only available, Paul says, to everyone who believes. So while the gospel is awesome, God can save me from hell, the gospel is limited in that it's only if you believe. And in the New Testament, to believe is far more than to make a mental assent of agreement. If I were to ask you, do you believe in Santa Claus? No. Some of you do. (laughs) Do you believe in George Washington? Yes, I do. Well, George Washington is not the power of God to save those who believe. Because all belief means in English is to assent this. I'm sure, yeah, I believe that. But in the New Testament, the word believe is a commitment that begins with trust, okay? So the gospel is the power of God to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ and in what he did on the cross. That's a decision of the will. If I stood here and said, I believe if I fall, Bob would catch me, right? I believe that, right? But if I trust Bob... I would go, right? But I don't trust Bob. <laughs> so a lot of people believe that Jesus died. Yeah, Lamb got to, but they don't trust him. They're not putting their confidence in him. They're not throwing themselves on the mercy of Jesus and claiming the gospel as their means of salvation. So to believe is a decision of the will, and it involves a commitment. It's not just Jesus, give me my hell insurance. It's a willingness to follow him. So ask yourself, is there a point in time, you don't need to remember when, but today, if you were to die, are you believing the gospel? Are you embracing what Jesus Christ did for you as the only way to go to heaven? If you are, then you can be sure of this, that God has granted you salvation. But then Paul adds something, and we go, why does he say this? Well, by the way, it's to the Jew first. So if God's offering the gospel to everybody, but it's to the Jew first. Now, this is important. Paul doesn't say this everywhere, but he says it in the book of Romans, Because as we mentioned, part of the issue in the Roman church was for five years, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome. So probably at this point, the the Roman church was primarily Gentile. And the Gentiles had a misunderstanding of God's program with the Jews. They thought that God was done with the Jews and that now the gospel was really for Gentiles alone. And so Paul's going to spend a lot of time in this book saying, Gentile, you need to know your role here. Don't become arrogant, he says, but for a time, God has set aside and hardened the Jews, but he's not done with the Jews, and the gospel promises were originally to Abraham and the Jewish people. They had a covenant, and they have promises, and so Paul always, wherever he went to witness, he started with Jews. He'd go to the synagogue and offer them the Jews, and we need to remember that. The gospel is still for the Jews first, and if you know Jews, try to witness to them. Don't just walk up and say, Jesus wants to save you, but engage conversations with them. All right? Now, how does God save people, and why is it so powerful? Paul says in verse 17, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, this is a tough phrase, the righteousness of God. By the way, when he says Greeks here, we actually have a Greek in our um, first service, and I forgot to mention this, but when Paul says Greeks here, it's also to the Greek. In this context, that's just another term for Gentiles. Gentiles. 
In some contexts, it's, it's limited to Jews, Greeks, barbarians, and so forth. But here he's just saying Jews or, or non-Jews, all right? But notice he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So again, something could be hidden, but if God wants to reveal it, he's saying, look, look up here, I want you to note something. I'm revealing to you the righteousness of God. Now, what that means has been argued about and debated over by a number of people. In fact, Martin Luther used to read this verse and say, I hate God because God is demanding righteousness from me and I can't do that. And so he began to hate God until he understood what God meant here when he says the righteousness of God is revealed. What he learned and the primary truth I think that this passage is teaching is that God God has revealed how he saves sinners by granting them a status of righteousness even while they're still unrighteous. What do you think about that? God confers upon me a sinner. He revealed his righteousness. He revealed that when I believe in Christ, he confers upon me. He, he grants me and declares me righteous. And you're like, why? I don't, I'm not righteous. Remember when you were a kid and the principal said, this is going to be on your record? You're like, my record. Well, God, on each of our records, when we believe in Christ, He grants us a status of righteousness. He declares that to be true. Now, so that's the first thing that the gospel reveals. You want to get right with God? It's got to be through Christ. It's got to be through believing because it's only by believing in what Christ did that God can grant you a status of righteousness. Without that righteousness, you ain't going to heaven. But the second thing it reveals about God's righteousness is this, that when he does that, If he simply just said, I know you're unrighteous, but I grant you righteousness, he would have then lost his righteousness. What do you mean? Well, suppose someone robbed your mother, caught on tape, video shows him, the guy confesses to it. He's in court, and the judge, who's supposed to be righteous, says this, I know you did it, but I'm a loving judge, so I grant you righteousness. I declare you not guilty, next. You would be flipping out with fury because you would say, that is unrighteous. To grant someone a status of righteousness when they are unrighteous, there needs to be a payment for this violation. And that's one of the things the gospel reveals. Paul says in Romans chapter three, God doesn't just grant us righteousness, but he grants us righteousness because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And thereby God can be just righteous, and still grant to us righteousness. So when Satan accuses me of being unrighteous, and God says, I've declared him righteous, and Satan says, that's not righteous, and God says, I can declare him righteous because Christ made the full payment. So the gospel reveals that if you want to get right with God, you must believe in the gospel and trust Christ. The gospel reveals that God can do that and still Be righteous because Christ paid for us. But third, the gospel reveals that God is still righteous when he inflicts punishment on those who don't come to Christ through the gospel. Because the rest of this passage in chapter 1 then is going to talk about wrath and judgment and punishment. And there are a lot of people out there who say this. I don't believe in a God who would punish people. But when you think about it, you do believe in a court system that's righteous, or you want it to be righteous. And so what we find there is that in this section, we're going we're to realize that it's totally righteous for God 
to inflict punishment. Paul's going to say in chapter 3, the God who inflicts punishment and wrath is not unrighteous, is he? So what the gospel reveals is that God has provided a way to be saved from his wrath. But if you're not, he's just as righteous in judging man for their sin. So the rest of this section, beginning in 118 all the way through 320, is the first part of the book. And I basically call it this, man's need for righteousness, or man's need to be saved, or why God condemns the whole world and and offers the gospel. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you got your first lifeguard position at age 16. Some of you go, yeah, I did. You were so excited. You took the classes at the YMCA, and you couldn't wait to rescue somebody. But the only place you could get a job was at the senior citizen's apartment complex. And no one ever swims there. At best, they just come and sit on the side and sip their lemonade or whatever. And I'm not slamming senior citizens. Have at it. I hope you swim in the pool. But wasn't a lot of kids, wasn't a lot of action. And as the summer went on, you're getting antsy. I haven't saved anyone. I haven't saved anyone. I want to be able to save someone. That's what I trained for. Finally, on the last day, no one's in the pool. And you begin to go around to the tables where they're playing cribbage and pinochle and so forth. And you go, would anyone here like to be saved? And they're going... Are you nuts? You see, that's exactly what I think is happening in American culture. We're telling people, uh, you want to be saved? And they're going, are you nuts? Saved from what? And so I think what we've, we've done is that we've made such a um, decision that we want to get people saved that we realize that they're not even going to want to get saved until they realize that they're lost. And in order them to realize that they're lost, they have to understand wrath and judgment and sin. Nobody wants to talk about that anymore. But that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a revelation that God is upset with sin and that he's going to punish it severely. In fact, the songwriter said it this way. By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. See, it wasn't until they heard the message of the Bible that God's upset with sin. And then they, they were like, whoa. And then they turned and said, yeah, I do. I'm drowning. I want to be saved. And so beginning in verse 18, Paul says, look, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So what he's going to do in this section is he's going to explain to us that everyone needs to be saved from the wrath of God. Everyone, no exceptions. But the means by which he's going to do that is he's going to start in chapter one by saying Gentiles need to be saved from the wrath of God. But then he's going to spend two chapters, all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3, to say that Jews need to be saved. And you might say, why? Why would he spend so much time telling Jews they need to be saved? Well, think about it. Jews assumed that because they're the chosen people and they've received a covenant from God that they're automatically saved. And so Paul's going to spend a whole lot of time showing Jews, you need to be saved also. And what we're going to find in this passage, and this is an excellent tool for sharing the gospel, is to realize there are religious sinners and irreligious sinners. And all of them need to be saved, but as you address them, you address them from a different angle. So this morning, and this should help you as you witness and as you think about the world and as you think about people that you know, verses 18 through 32 are primarily for for Gentiles who were considered not followers of the one true God, not necessarily moral people. And we have a lot of people that we know like that. They're really not interested in religion. So what we're going to do is find in verses 18 through 23 that God 
is angry with man. But it's not so much for their specific sins, like, because you, you lied. It's because overall, in a broad sweeping thing, man has failed miserably to live for what he was created for. So when God designed Adam and Eve, it was for his glory and their benefit that they might worship, serve, thank, and glorify him day after day. That, that, that it wouldn't even cross their mind to live for themselves. That it wouldn't even cross their mind not to give glory and honor. It wouldn't even cross their mind that they're not creatures dependent on their creator. But what happened was when Adam sinned, his disposition was so drastically corrupted that from that day on, everyone became a twisted idolater. Everyone exchanged the worship of the one true God for all manner of idolatry, and that includes us. So let's look at how Paul explains this, beginning of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, God's wrath is his anger towards sin. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, when you think about suppressing the truth, it'd be something like this. You and your dad are at the movie theater, and your dad says, come on, we'll sneak you in. And you're going, Dad, that's not right. And so you and your dad walk up to the line, and the guy goes, can I see your tickets? And, and your dad says, um, yeah, we already paid. Uh, we just came out to go to the bathroom. And you go, Dad. And he goes, he suppressed the truth, right? But this is way bigger than one little lie. It's a big lie. It's a mindset lie. And Paul explains this big truth that they suppress down in verse 25. This is the broad scope of what he means in this passage. They exchange the truth of God. Now here he means the truth about God. And the truth is that there's only one God and he deserves all the glory, all the worship, all the service. There's nobody else. But they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And literally in the Greek text, it means the lie. And that's this. They worship and serve the creature, the creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The God who deserves to be blessed from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same has been rejected. And now people are still worshipers. It's just they don't worship God anymore. They worship all manner of other distortions. Now, you might say, yeah, but people who've never heard the Bible, that's not their fault. Like, how are people supposed to believe in God? They never heard about Him. They need to hear the Bible. And Paul says it's inexcusable for two reasons, one internally and one externally. Look at verse 19, where people go, I don't even believe in God. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God has made it evident to them. I want you to think about that. There's something about God that everyone knows within them. Well, how can they know it within them? I like what Thomas Schreiner said about this. He says, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind an awareness of himself. I've often said it this way. God has placed within us a God chip. There's something inside people that they know there's a God. This explains why they worship. It's distorted. They might be in the jungle and worship a chicken, but they're worshiping something. God has made it evident within them. But not only has he made it evident within them, but verse 20 tells us that the truth about God is, is available externally by looking around. In other words, what if a person says, 
I don't believe in God. Why should I believe in him? I've never seen him. Suppose you were on the crime scene investigation. You came into a room, and there was a bloody body and glass and evidence of a great struggle, tables all over the place. I've seen a million shows like this. Imagine one of the policemen saying, I don't believe there was a crime here because I don't see the criminal. Do you really need to see the criminal to know that there was a crime if there's enough evidence, right? In the same way, God's saying, look around at creation. You can clearly see that I'm God and that I'm powerful and that you answer to me and I'm your creator. So for you to say, I don't believe in God is inexcusable. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. They look up, they see the moon and the stars. There's plenty of evidence for a powerful, awesome creator to whom we answer. And so God says, therefore, man is without excuse. So no atheist is going to stand before God and say, I didn't see you, so why should I believe in you? God's going to say, because I made it evident within you, and I made it evident to you externally. But this doesn't get people off the hook if they go, well, I'm not an atheist, so I'm good. Because even the knowledge that mankind has of God, look what we've done with it. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. So, so here's Adam, right? Adam knew God personally, but he has two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain knew all about God. His dad taught him. But he didn't honor him as God. He wasn't thankful. You know, think about how, how, how upside down humanity is. We go into a restaurant, and we see a family bowing in prayer to give thanks. And we go, whoa, did you see that? They must be Christians, right? If this world was the way it was supposed to be, if someone didn't bow, we'd say, wow, what's wrong with them? Because we were created to worship God and honor him and give thanks. But the world, even though they know there's a God, they don't worship him. They don't give thanks to him. But they're certainly glad to create their own God. Look what the text says. Even though they know God, they don't honor him as God, verse 21, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So it's a free-for-all. Well, I like to think that God is like a man upstairs. My God would never put someone in hell. I like to think of God as a woman. I prefer to think that there are many gods. I prefer to think that there is no God and that we just evolved from a big bang. And the problem is we're stupid enough to honor those people and go, he has a PhD. He should teach at Harvard. He's really smart. And God says, really? Look at the next verse. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You can have a person who's really smart. There's a lot of PhDs. But the Bible says only a fool says in his heart there's no God. And what has happened? Well, there's this great exchange on planet Earth. And Paul wants to show the magnitude of it. God is so awesome and powerful and glorious and great that he deserves worship and service unceasing honor and submission. But he's literally going to say, instead of worshiping God, people worship gophers. What's wrong with this picture? Look at verse 23. 
We have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, literally reptiles. It's almost like, really? Almighty God, whose greatness is unsearchable, should be worshipped, and people are worshipping a turtle? Or an image of corruptible man, a fat-bellied statue called Buddha, dear Buddha, I thank you. And lest we as Americans go, well, we're not like that. We don't, no statues in my yard, man. We worship humanity. And you'll see great expressions of that in about an hour from now. When we pay men $40 million a year to run with a dead pig in his arm. <laughs> right? We worship self. We worship money. We exclude God just like the world. We just don't in America lean towards bowing down to statues. But we're not off the hook here. So, so that's the problem is that we, our hearts are idol factories. Something else takes the place of God. Might be my girlfriend. Might be my job. Might be my money. Might be my Facebook. And if it's a girlfriend, I'm in big trouble because I'm married. Might be my wife, <laughs> Right? Other things become our idol. We're still worshipers. It's just not God anymore, right? He does not reign supreme, and everybody does it. But what 24 through 32 is going to show us is that there are consequences to that. You can't push the anti-God button. You can't live out of submission and faith to God without having consequences. So this explains why the world is the way it is. The rest of this passage, God's going to say, listen, this is why people do what they do. And you know what he's going to start with? He's going to start with sexual sin. When God created sin, he didn't, or sex rather, he didn't go, this is just a naughty for them to have kids. Sex was designed to be a glorious gift between a husband and wife for joy and oneness and procreation. But in man's wickedness, once they set aside God, Paul says in verse 24, therefore, as a consequence of this, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Now, some people, as they think about sin, they go, well, it's kind of just like the natural reaction. God just goes, okay, I'm just going to leave you alone. It's far stronger than that. Three times, it's going to say God gave them over. This is a judicial consequence of the world rejecting God. Why is everybody out there having sex before they're married. People who are married having sex with other spouses. Homosexuality, some of the extremes, pedophilia, incest. Why is all that happening? Because the world has rejected God. And so God says, I'm giving you over to impurity. And, then, and when the Bible uses impurity, it's almost always talking about sexual impurity. That their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now he's going to come back and explain it even more. But before he does in verse 25, this is an important verse because verse 25 is a summary of what he just said earlier about this whole idolatry. This is what people have done. They're born with an awareness that there's a God and they should worship and serve him, but no one does. But what do they do? Well, it says, they exchange the truth of God for the lie. So if you're here this morning and you're an atheist, God says, you've exchanged the truth for the lie. And I'm not trying to insult you or say you're not intelligent. You can be very intelligent, but you've been deceived. And not only have they exchanged the truth about God, but they worship and serve the creature, creation, rather than what we should be doing, worshiping and serving our creator. 
And see, that's the beauty of becoming a Christian. God forgives us, and now we learn to function the way we were originally created for because he, he makes us new, and now I'm learning how to worship and serve my creator. See, the Bible says men knew God. They didn't glorify him at God. Then you get saved, and the Bible says, now learn to glorify God in your body. Isn't it great that God doesn't just say, I'll spare you from hell. He changes us so that we can learn to get into our, as they say in baseball, our wheelhouse, to be in that zone like, oh, so this is what I was created for. This is how life makes sense. When I submit to God, I believe in Christ, and I learn to glorify him. That's, the, that's living. But Paul says, let me come back to this idea of God giving us over to sexual sin. He says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now, what Paul's going to talk about in these two verses is homosexuality and homosexual practice. And, and it is worthwhile to stop and ask, why does Paul choose homosexual sex as a demonstration of God's judgment? Why doesn't he just talk about any sex that's not biblical? Because the Bible says God's going to judge homosexuals, but it also says he's going to judge idolaters, adulterers, fornicators, right? So why does he choose homosexual sex? And I think perhaps the answer would be this. Because just as he illustrated this great you know, two ends of the spectrum. We should be worshiping God, but we're worshiping gophers. Like, who worships a reptile when they should be worshiping God? He's taking sex and he's saying, here's a great extreme of a distortion, right? That man and woman were created to be married and to have natural sex between a married couple, but instead mankind has distorted it. The Bible does address homosexuality. God doesn't hate homosexuals. He hates sin. He hates adultery. He hates sleeping together when you're not married. But, but this is an extreme. So notice how he says it. For this reason, God gave them over. So he starts with women. Women exchanging the natural function for what's unnatural. And then he turns to men. In the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman. And they burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. So, so, so you look at that verse, you say, no, wait a minute. So, so Paul's saying it's unnatural to have sex with the same sex. Yeah. But I think we need to be really careful before we say to people, if you're attracted to the same sex, you chose that. You are so evil that you, you decided sex with opposite sex wasn't enough. You just chose to be attracted to the same sex and live that way. If you weren't here when I preached from Genesis 18 and 19 on Sodom and Gomorrah, go back and listen to that message. Because in part of it, we had a pastor share his testimony. A pastor who has same-sex attraction. And he says, look, as long as I can remember, I was attracted to the same sex. I don't know why. There's a lot of sociological speculation about that. Some people say you're born with a gene for it. I don't buy that. But I don't think it's fair to just say, oh, you just chose it. So let's be compassionate and realize some people have same-sex attraction but they don't have to choose to commit these acts of homosexuality. And you're like, well, gosh. Imagine if I said to you, we, you don't understand. I have extra wife attraction. So unlike other people, I, you know, one wife, you would say, get out of here. That's called lust, right? And you don't have to practice that. 
So let's be compassionate to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. But we're certainly not going to condone and say, oh, it's okay, that's how God made you. Because that's what Satan's doing. Satan is very clever, and what he's trying to do is he's got a lot of godless people who are twisting the Bible out there. The Bible says this in 2 Peter 3, many men will twist the scriptures. So what they do is they find every passage that condemns homosexuality, and they try to figure out a way to explain it away. You know how they try to explain this one away? Well, when God says men leave the natural desire of the woman, what, what he's saying here is if you're naturally heterosexual, then it would be sinful for you to practice homosexuality because you're leaving your natural desire. But he's not saying if you're naturally attracted, like, like Miley Silas re- recently said, I'm pansexual. Pan meaning every. You're like, oh, oh, I, I get, No. And so if a person chooses to become homosexual and practice that, God have mercy on them. But for them to try to act like the Bible's okay with that, no. But lest we throw stones at them and say, you dirty homosexual, God says he's going to judge adultery and fornication. But then when it says homosexuals receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error, there's a great deal of debate. What does that mean? And some have attempted to say that Paul means here sexually transmitted diseases. That's why people get AIDS. They're sleeping with the same sex. And I'm going, really? Isn't that kind of reductionistic? There's an awful lot of people who get sexually transmitted diseases like AIDS from many other things like transfusions. So so I would have a hard time saying sexually transmitted diseases are only because God's judging homosexual behavior. In fact, one commentary said, you know what? Do you ever notice how many people who struggle with same-sex attraction are tormented? He said, maybe that in itself is part of the judgment. Because no matter how much people tell them, it's okay. They're tormented inside themselves because they know it's not okay. But Paul's going to close this section. Now remember, what he's trying to say is, this is why we need to be saved. Because we're all idolaters. And the consequences is God has given us over and sexual sin is rampant in American culture. And so for those of you that look back on your past and say, so that's why I am the way I am. It's not excusing it. It's calling us to repentance and to the gospel where God can make you new and forgive you and heal you from whatever you did or whatever happened to you. But Paul's going to wind this section down with one more God gave them over. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... I want you to note that in Greek, this is what it says. They didn't want God in their knowledge. What would that look like? Well, there there again. If I have an internal awareness of God stitched into me, and so from time to time throughout the day, I think about God. Why would people not want to think about God? Well, duh. Because if I think about God and I'm doing evil, then it reminds me that he's going to judge me. And I don't want to think about that. So they keep pressing the delete button. I don't want to think about God. I don't want him on my screensaver. I don't want you to remind me of him. I don't want you to remind me of judgment. And so Paul says, as a result, God gives men over to a depraved mind. You see, once you remove God from the equation, people will do anything. There's no limit. The Bible says the heart of man is is constantly devising and inventing evil. We, we, we go, how could somebody walk into a school and just shoot people? How could someone kill their grandmom just to get her credit card? How could someone light their child on fire? Because once God's out of a person's mind, anything goes. 
And so Paul just gives a list of, of the consequences of when we, when we become idolaters and we push God out of our, our lives and when we take the Ten Commandments off the wall and when we're teaching our culture that anything goes and there's no God. Look at verse 19 or verse 29. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, gossips, slanderers, ruining other people's reputations, haters of God, insolent, proud, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, some of the wicked things. It's disgusting, Paul says, even to, to speak of what they do. Disobedient to parents. Wow, that's in there? Young people? Yeah. Those of you who are adults and dishonored your parents and still do, Apparently, God thinks that that's worse than maybe our culture does. Without understanding, untrustworthy. How could someone see someone bleeding and just keep shooting them? Unloving, unmerciful. Surely they don't know what they're doing. Verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God, they know it, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who do that. And you go, wait, what's that saying? It's saying people are keenly aware that they deserve God's judgment, and they do it anyway. But you ever notice that in certain aberrations of real evil, like atheists, that they can become militant, that they can have parades, that homosexuals can have parades, and, and, and when... When a gay couple kisses on the kiss cam in a big stadium, the whole stadium starts clapping and you're going, wait, does that mean everybody in here is homosexual? No, but think about how Satan has worked in our culture. Listen to this quote. Those who condone and applaud sinful actions of others are actually making a deliberate contribution to the setting up of public opinion. Some of us are going, how could the White House look like a rainbow? What happened? Because those who condone sinful actions are making a deliberate contribution to the setting up of a public opinion favorable to sin. And so the corruption of an indefinite number of other people. And you say, well, why would people do that? Why would they know that they're going to be judged? Why would they risk the judgment of God knowing that they're going to hell and then invite others? Well, misery loves company, but, but it seems insanity, doesn't it? It seems insanity that someone say, I like doing this. I don't care what God says, and I know I'm going to hell. It seems insanity, but this shows the depth to which sin can take us in its deception. It's scary, isn't it? It's depressing. But it's wonderful to know the gospel is the power of God to save people from that. Jesus, Jesus weighed in on this. He says, what good is it if you gain the whole world? You just go sin like it's your job, but you lose your soul. And yet, isn't that what's going on in American culture? It's like people don't know. They just push God to the fringes. So as we close this morning... It's a sad passage, but it's an important passage because it tells us what's going on on this planet. So let me share a couple thoughts as we close. Number one, 
You and I need to live out this gospel by rehearsing it every day. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So don't believe what Satan tells you about you. Don't believe because you messed up and yelled at your wife or you did something stupid this week, God's mad at you if you're a Christian. He can't stand you and you live in guilt. God sees you and me as absolutely righteous, even when I'm not, because of the gospel. He has declared me righteous. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Every day, I need to remind myself that. I serve God not because I hope he's going to let me into heaven. I serve God because he already promised me heaven, because I believe the gospel. And so I'm not condemned, no matter what Satan tells me. I am forgiven because of the gospel, and I praise Jesus for that. But secondly, as believers, knowing that I am declared righteous, I now have the privilege of learning how to live the way I was supposed to. It doesn't come natural. We learn this. The Apostle Paul said, therefore, learn to glorify God, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. So, so it's a whole new way to live. The world's just like ignoring God. We're living in the presence of God, worshiping him. That's normal. The Bible says unbelievers don't worship God, they don't serve God, and they're not thankful. Believers should be thankful, we should serve God, and we should worship Him. And we should teach our kids to do the same. How dare we just say, well, I just want to let my kid choose. He's already chosen. We're trying to rescue him from that through loving them and praying for them to believe the gospel. And then we have to teach others about their need of the gospel. This is where people are like, well, you know, I, I don't talk about religion. Well, it, come on. No wonder, I'll just witness by my life. Yeah, go ahead. But think about how preposterous that is. If you had the cure for cancer, and the guy next to you had cancer, and you said, I'll just wait for him to ask me. You're like, what? But there are Christians all over America who never tell anyone. They never tell their loved ones. Like, how could you not tell your loved ones? How could you not love them enough to warn them? It doesn't mean you have to show up with the Bible and say, my pastor said today, we're all going to hell. His wrath is on you. But have you considered engaging them in conversation, saying, could we read Romans together? I'd love to have your opinion. Could you write them a letter? Could you just ask permission to talk to your neighbors sometime about the Bible? How glorious it would be if each one of us could find one person that would read Romans with us as we're studying through us. Paul said, I warn every man and I teach every man as I proclaim Christ. So it's not like we just have to warn them of the bad news. We can also tell them about the good news. You can be saved through the gospel. He saved me. If he can save me, he can save you. And so lastly, I ask this. Have you experienced the power of God to salvation? Are you saved? Have you believed and embraced the gospel yourself? You're like, well, I'm kind of religious. I don't think I need that. <clears throat> you need to be saved. You don't have to look back and go, I remember the exact moment I was saved. But right now, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you have committed your life to Christ and you trust him alone? If you haven't done that, do that today. Don't put it off. You can do that right now. It's a gift. The Bible says we receive the gift of righteousness. What do I have to do to get ready? Just be willing to change. Just turn to Jesus and come as you are. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the gospel. I am so glad that someone told me the gospel and that you displayed your power in saving a sinner like me. 
And I thank you, Lord, that as a church family, we're learning the gospel together. And we praise you that you have declared all of us who believe righteous. And because of that, we're going to see you forever and be spared from wrath. Lord, give us a burden to love the lost like you do. And this week, Lord, I pray that I'll learn better how to glorify, honor, thank you, and love others. Change us through your powerful gospel. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. And this morning, God's awakened you and you say, you know what? I believe that. I believe it with all my heart. I trust Jesus today and I want to follow him. I want to ask you to just look up to me for a minute, raise your hand. I want to pray for you if you're going, you know what? I, I, today, I get it. I, I want to trust Jesus and follow him. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. Is there anybody today you say, God spoke to me and I, I want to be saved? Anybody else? Yes, praise the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. For these who raised their hand today, I pray that you will give them the courage to follow up now that we could talk to them. And for those who are still thinking about it, I pray that they will take no rest until they believe the gospel. Help us as parents to teach our children the gospel. Help us as friends and neighbors and family members to love each other because of the gospel. And we pray that you will be greatly glorified through this church as we advance the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and make many disciples. Thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're interested or you have questions or you made a decision today, could you give me your number before you leave? Just hand it to me. I want to give you a call or have somebody in the church follow up with you. All right, have a great day.